Welcome to the Bob Siegel Show podcast on the Cross Global Media Radio Network. Visit cgmradio.com slash bob to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. We continue now with our discussion of Old Testament war. You're listening to part two of a three-part podcast. If you missed part one, you might want to go back and listen to that first. It was in yesterday's podcast. You can find part one by going to cgmradio.com slash bob. That's cgmradio.com slash bob. There you can download or stream it. I'm answering a question about Old Testament wars, and we gave the easy part of the answer yesterday, that when God commanded the Israelites to go to war, they were warring against evil nations that lived in the land of Canaan that were displaced and conquered appropriately by the Israelites because these were people that took children and offered them on altars. God was rescuing the children. I mentioned that it did not make sense that God, out of a concern for children being offered on the altars, would then have the Israelites go in and kill the very children that he was concerned about. We'll continue from there. And here's an objection that I commonly get at this point. But Bob, many Christians will say exactly that. They talk about children suffering for the sins of their parents. They justify God's destruction of children by saying that in those days, the only way to punish a person was to punish his entire family as well. That was true of those days. That was not true of the Bible in those days. It is true that the ancient Middle Eastern cultures held children responsible for the sins of their parents, but this was a belief radically challenged by the Holy Scriptures, which began with the Law of Moses. I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children for their fathers. Many, many years later, at the time of the kings, Amaziah obeyed this law. He put to death men who killed his father, but spared their sons. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 14. In Ezekiel's day, this remained a similar teaching. I'm reading from Ezekiel chapter 18. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep my decrees, he will surely live. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Now, I know what you're thinking, but Bob, don't we read in the second of the Ten Commandments that sins are passed on to the third and fourth generation? The Hebrews spoke with a lot of hyperbole, more of that in a moment. They spoke as if everything that God allowed, God caused. Sometimes they said it that way, and then other times they said that God allowed it. I've talked about that in other programs. But here's the passage in question, Exodus 20, 5 through 6. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, my friends, to the third and fourth generation was a typical Semitic phrase which addressed at its heart continuity. This was not to be interpreted as a mathematical equation. It was instead describing the probability that children will follow in the footsteps of their parents. 
It's likely that children growing up and being raised by their parents are going to commit the same sins when they become adults. It doesn't have to be that way. That's a pattern that can be broken, especially if we give our lives to Christ. But if that pattern isn't broken, and it often isn't, yeah, those sins continue to the third and fourth generation. Well, at this point, people ask about Achan. Why was Achan's entire family put to death for the sin of stealing? This is Joshua chapter 7. Well, in all probability, they participated in the crime. Remember, the ages of his children are not given, and his children could have been grown adults still living with their parents, a very common living arrangement in those days. Now that we've established some background, let's return to the second part of our original question. Why did God command the Israelites to completely wipe out the nations of Canaan in mass genocide? Well, in a nutshell, he didn't. Or at least a very good case can be made that he didn't. When God commanded the destruction of certain nations, he seems to have meant displace them as a people as opposed to completely exterminate. For one thing, these people all continued to exist hundreds of years later at the time of Solomon. Second Chronicles chapter 8, all the people left from the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, these people were not Israelites, that is, their descendants remaining in the land whom the Israelites had not destroyed, these Solomon conscripted for his slave labor force, as it is to this day. Notice that every nation listed in Deuteronomy chapter 20 as targets for destruction is listed here, with the exception of the Canaanites. Since Canaan was a double term, referring both to the entire land of Canaan as well as an individual nation sharing that land with other nations in Canaan, the author of Second Chronicles may have felt it unnecessary to repeat the term. In any event, we know that the people of Canaanite nationality survived as well. You can go into the New Testament and see Jesus talking to somebody from Canaan. From this provocative passage in Chronicles, we can reach two very safe conclusions. First, the Israelites obviously did not exterminate these people, because if they had, there would have been few, if any, survivors. Obviously, this is a description meaning more than a handful of fleeing refugees, as these are people settled in the land, entrenched enough to retain some of their national identity, all the way up through Solomon's time several hundred years later. And second, Solomon himself did not feel he had to exterminate them to finish the job. I know they talked about him putting them under slave labor. They did that with enemy nations so that their ideas could not spread, so that they could not wage violence. It wasn't slavery as we would understand the term today. Now, this case is made even more conclusive when we remember that Joshua, after conquering the land of Canaan, was said to have obeyed everything the Lord commanded him to do. And commanding them to destroy everything was part of the command. So however that was interpreted by Joshua, God says Joshua did it. Joshua 11:15 as the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Well, if he left nothing undone, then sparing those nations, nations that lived all the way up to the time of Solomon, was apparently not a contradiction to everything God commanded him. You see the importance, my friends, of reading Scripture in context. We conclude that conquering the land and enforcing the servitude of the people is all that the Israelites did and all that they understood God commanding them to do. 
All right, then. If that's true, then how do we explain extreme words like completely destroy? The specific Hebrew word used for destroy here means the irrevocable giving over to God. That can include destruction, but it does not necessarily mean destroy in the sense that we know the word. There's also an explanation, and I alluded to this a moment ago, in the way ancient Hebrews and others talked back in those days. They used extreme, exaggerated phrases and spoke somewhat poetically a great deal of the time. The following quote is from Dr. Samuel Davidson, a scholar familiar with the ways of the ancient Near East. He who does not remember the wide difference between the Oriental and Occidental mind must necessarily fall into error. The luxuriant imagination and the glowing ardor of the former express themselves in hyperbolically and extravagant diction, whereas the subdued character and coolness of the latter are averse to sensuous luxuriance. And so, my friends, at times the commands of God as regards war were written in a style that the Hebrews themselves would have taken as exaggerated and poetic. Now, even though this is true of the ancient Near East, it's somewhat true of our culture even today. We do this at football games. Somebody comes back from a football game. We ask them, hey, how was the game? Oh, how was the game? Whoa. We pulverized them. We murdered them. We wiped up the floor by dragging their faces across it. We talk that way all the time, and we know we don't mean it. We use exaggerated phrases. We've got to allow that ancient cultures did the same thing. In fact, they did it even more than us. And so again, at times, those commands of God were written in a style that the Hebrews themselves would have taken as poetic, would have taken as exaggerated. But at other times, the details of the war, sparing women and children, were spelled out. In Deuteronomy 20, we seem to see both used together. He says, when you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall now work for you. If they refuse to make peace, and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves. Again, God's precautions to avoid innocent casualties of war are noteworthy. Unfortunately, the passage is harder when we read on a little further ahead in Deuteronomy 20. However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. All right, very important. We must read this passage in the light of all that we have learned so far. First, the Israelites did not, in fact, completely destroy those nations. That's just the bottom line. They instead displaced them as a people. So whatever you want to argue about the command, that is what they, in fact, did. Second, God does not punish children for the sins of their parents. Indeed, it is out of concern for children that he was using the Hebrews to conquer those people anyway. Third, 
the sparing of women and children seems a standard practice issued by God. Fourth, the word for destroy could be interpreted as completely give over to God, a phrase compatible with the notion of conquering. And five, the Hebrews often spoke in exaggerated phrases. For all these reasons, my friends, I have come to the conclusion that the sparing of women and children discussed in the first part of this passage is assumed in the second part. The contrast between the two commands is in the fact that with some cities, peace will be offered and men accepting the offer can be spared. But in those cities inhabiting the land of Canaan, peace will not be offered. The adult males of those cities are to be executed, for from them the practice of other religious worship would spread, whereas with women and children, the bondage and servitude would be more readily accepted. The phrase, put to death everything that breathes, extreme and poetic in its rhythm, would be a way of saying, put to death the males, the authorities, and in so doing you are destroying the nation for all intents and purposes." Now, I know many dedicated Christians will disagree with my conclusion. Although the idea of exaggerated Hebrew speech is a fact of history, it is not always clear when these exaggerations are taking place. And for this reason, I completely respect those who read this passage differently. All I'm saying is that we don't necessarily have to read some of those passages as we may have previously thought. And again, bottom line, those people were not exterminated. There was no genocide. Whether you think the Israelites were obeying God, whether you think the Israelites were disobeying God, I think they were obeying God and understanding God differently than we understand it, reading it thousands of years later. However, whether they understood him, whether they didn't understand him, bottom line, no such extermination took place under ancient Israel. I'm sure that I've raised as many questions as I've answered, and I will address some of those questions as we continue and wrap up this subject in tomorrow's podcast. The Bob Siegel Show podcast is a production of Bob Siegel and Cross Global Media. Visit us online and subscribe to the show at cgmradio.com slash bob.